Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. This is the Pop Cult Podcast. I'm Seth. I'm Ariana. And today we are going to be talking about the next film in our watch through of Francis Ford Coppola's work. That will be Bram Stoker's Dracula. But first, we want to present to you our top five most anticipated films of 2023. Uh, every year, this first week of the year, uh, they, and they meaning multiple movie websites, put out lists of movies that will be coming out in the coming year. Uh, I would recommend places like Little White Lies, I think, has probably the best write-ups on these movies. And that's what we kind of used to narrow down and create our list of five movies that are most likely coming out in 2023. There's one movie on my list that every year I put it on my most anticipated movies <laughs> okay. list. I know it's in editing right now, so that's it's the farthest it's ever gotten. So maybe it will, maybe it won't. I don't know. So we will kick this off uh, with Ariana. What is number five on your list of most anticipated movies? It is Love Lies Bleeding. Um, It's supposed to be Rose Glass, who had directed St. Maud. Okay, yeah. It's an upcoming movie. It's going to be produced by A24. Kristen Stewart is supposed to be in it. I'm not a really big fan of hers. I know that there's a lot of people that for some reason think she's an amazing actress. Yeah, like... Spencer, I wasn't impressed. No. There was an uh, Olivier Assayas movie that she was in that I was like, eh, that it was like Personal Shopper yeah, that yeah, people yeah. raved about and I just didn't really get. I know like uh, that last Cronenberg movie she was in. Crimes of the Future. She was good in that, but I also fell asleep during yeah, that. Yeah, but it's also a supporting role too. Yeah. And is this, she's starring in this one? So she's in this film. Um... She stars basically a lesbian couple that's excited, uh, that is protective of her female bodybuilder uh, lover, who's supposed to be played by Jenna Malone, possibly. Huh. But it's we're not really sure. Concerned that her paramour will be chewed up and spat out by the coatthroat world of competitive, uh, competitive uh, muscle women. And it, uh, the press release foretold romance fueled by ego, desire, and the American dream. So it's basically following this trend of Europeans making movies be- based in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Like basically like giving their view of yeah, what their the perspective US is. of what's so going. So I'm interested in that dynamic. I mean, I'm always interested in dyna- uh, like directors that are from Europe wanting to like analyze the way they view the states yeah yeah because i think it's interesting to get an outsider perspective and sort of the bodybuilding thing which is funny because um elijah bynum who directed hot summer nights that timothy chalamet was army hammer in that movie too Uh, i'm trying to remember who the other guy was in that movie was no, it? it was what well, it's just like a generic pretty boy. Yeah, dude. Uh, he's got a movie coming out that's about a very volatile young man who's obsessed with bodybuilding competitions, and then Sean Durkin, who directed um, Martha Marcy May Marlene, has The Iron Claw, which is about a family of wrestlers. So it feels like twenty twenty three is the year of getting swole. I mean, it's or also something. this interesting thing that we like a lot of wrestlers either are. Not, I mean, they they never go really in between when it comes to their politics. They're either like super leftist slash socialist slash com- uh, uh, like communist, or they're fascist. 
Well, I mean, you have like Dave Bautista, who's very left wing. Yes. Uh, but then I was thinking about like The Rock in the last year, who just made an embarrassment of himself. <laughs> and so I feel like it is time to kind of let's let's dissect this sort of macho physicality yeah, for what it is. Especially you know? with the uptick of like men wanting to be like. Do you lift, bro? Which well, there was that like so two thousand. One or... guy that I'm always so happy when I don't really know people's names or what the fuck's going on. Uh-huh. But some liver king. There was some guy who like yeah, it was liver claimed king. to become like jacked based on eating liver, but it turned out he was just taking like human growth hormone. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's I do kind of like, and it's interesting that it's a female bodybuilder, mm-hmm. and then Jenna Malone has me very interested yeah, how, if it is really her, if it is how her they're going to do that. But she is in the film, so that they're suspecting she might that be. it might be her. Um, I would it, almost feel like they maybe need to cast someone who's already in that world. I think it's just, it's, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. We'll see. Okay. That's uh, why it's anticipated. Yeah. Uh, my number five, mm-hmm. and you'll probably be surprised that it's as low on the list as it is. Okay. But it's lower on the list because it's a movie that I have a lot of confidence in. So the higher up on the list, the more I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. I like how it's going to be. So number five on my list is Bo is Afraid, mm-hmm. directed by Ari Aster, who previously directed uh, Hereditary and Midsummer, which if anyone listens to the podcast or reads the website or knows me personally, okay. uh, they know I love those movies. I think Aster is one of the few American filmmakers right now who makes movies that are genuinely surprising and original. They don't feel derivative. Yeah. But and you're and, but they feel like they create these very realized worlds with a very clear tone. Uh, it's almost surreal in a lot of ways. But yeah. the human characters are still very grounded. Like you really have empathy for these people. So Bo is Afraid is a movie that's been operating under Disappointment Boulevard, originally was the title. It stars Joaquin Phoenix, and we finally started to get some information about it uh, via the posters that have come out. They feature Joaquin Phoenix in almost like four different points in his life. Mm -hmm. So there's a child all the way up to like a very old man. Um, It's allegedly a decade-spanning surrealist comedy horror set in an alternate present. That's okay. how Ari Aster has, has sold this one. Uh, and the further information we've gotten is uh, an extremely anxious but pleasant-looking man who has a fraught relationship with his overbearing mother and never knew his father. When his mother dies, he makes a journey home that involves some wild supernatural threats. It also stars actors like Nathan Lane, Patti Lapone, Parker Posey, Richard Kind. It's a lot of people that I associate with theater like stage acting mm-hmm. or, or improv and older actors actors that are like in their 50s or older like mm-hmm. parker posey and i'm just very interested to see where it goes i know um i never remember the, the gentleman's name he was a, a older black actor he was in um alex garland's devs he's a character actor that we see in a oh, lot yeah, of things he's like in dune also yes he plays the mentat I, yeah in dune, i forgot yeah. his name but he's in a lot of but stuff yeah, he w- remarked that the relationship he saw between aster and phoenix on set was remarkable he said like they would have disagreements about creative things but like within seconds it, they were made up and they were focused back on the project and doing the work that needed to be done mm-hmm. so it's sounding like they are meshing on whatever this is and they both understand like where they need to go with it. Yeah, like it's interesting because I I have complicated feelings about Joaquin Phoenix. I think he's an amazing actor. I think it's just uh, my opinion has dwindled down ever since Joker. 
eh. I mean, but that's to me, just, I'm like, hey, he my, did it for the paycheck. <laughs> he did it for the paycheck, but that's my personal feelings about it. Like, I'm sure he's going to do amazing, and I think... Oh, I'm sure that the money he made off of Joker, he used a large chunk of it to fund the sort of animal rights and environmental causes that he's interested in. And I'm like, if that's the best thing that comes out of Joker, that's great. I love that. I love that that stupid movie helped him pay for some of those things. Yeah. All right, what is number four on your list? It is occupied by Stephen McQueen. So okay. he is doing a journey into nonfiction set to begin at Second World War. What's the name of the movie? Documentary called Occup- it's called okay. Occupied City. Okay. Um, based on the history book Atlas of an Occupied City uh, by writer and filmmaker Bianca Stitker. It happens, uh, who happens to be married to McQueen. Oh, yeah, I'd heard that was his wife. Um, the book maps the trace of the war, the capital, is, uh, as well as the documentary. Um, it is partially funded by the Netherlands Film Fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a collaboration with the UK and said that the relationship is a project that living in Amsterdam is like living with spirits. It took... It looks like there are two parallel worlds. The past is always there. So we... We've discussed this before. We haven't really said it on the podcast. He's living in the uh, like. The I didn't know Stephen McQueen's living there. Yeah, Apparently. it was. I think he forgot. We just go ever, hang out with him there. Yeah, but he, like he he's been living there mm-hmm. and just wanting to make something. Um, is his wife Dutch? I think so. Okay. So the budget is five million, okay. and um, it's more of a documentary. But I'm very interested to see what he does. Because yeah, it's a different form for him. Yes. And, and that's, yeah. And it's not an original piece by him, which I think he's, I want to say, no, I told you he was a slave. Someone else wrote that. But yeah, that's, it's based on a book. It's based on a book by his wife. Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting, like, it's an interesting adaptation. So path. it basically is set upon the 1940 and 1945 talking about like what was going on in the netherlands during the war okay so i mean i'm i'm gonna guess it'll probably touch on Anne frank a bit but that's not going to be the focus of it it's, it's basically generally talking what about was go- being an occupied city and probably also going to remark about like maybe a reflection of what it is today to live in amsterdam knowing the rich history that's there or i'm also thinking if he'll touch on the sort of devastation that occurred during and after the nazi occupation because one thing that we have learned is that there was a massive famine after the nazis left the netherlands yeah and that had a very profound effect i think on a lot of the people's view towards like struggle and Mm -hmm. deprivation yeah of things is that they've kind of it's a very calvinist mindset of sort of you you appreciate the tiny crumbs that you get yeah i'm interested in watching it just because again it's it's personal at the same time it isn't to have a perspective of an outsider it's also that interesting thing of knowing that the netherlands film fund helped fund this project and there's just not a lot of prominent dutch movies that's one thing when we got here i tried to kind of research and there's some people uh uh like Vicky. They do comedies yeah. or slice of life stuff, but it's nothing that you'd probably be like, oh, if you wanted to go watch French films. Well, like when we walk by the theater nearby, I'll sometimes see posters for original Dutch movies that I've never heard of before. Which are just like, again, comedy, comedy yeah, very light of life. kind of movies. Yeah. Well, number four on my list is Challengers. 
directed by Luca Guadagnino. Oh, but previously I wanted to say, because I, I put down the release dates for some of these. Uh, Bo is Afraid, coming out April 28th. So not okay. too far away. It's going to be pretty yeah, the, yeah, so far the ones that I had did not have yeah, release dates. Yeah, I do have some money here that are just to be decided. Uh, Challengers is going to drop August 11th. And will be the next film from Luca Guadagnino. So okay. he's got one coming. Uh, this one stars Zendaya. And that's what had me most interested, was the combination of him and her. Uh, because she's an actress who I like, but I have yet to see her in what I would consider an adult role. I know she did. There was like a shot during COVID movie with um, uh, David Washington. I always forget his middle I think initial. he's like the creator. John David Washington. Of like... Uh... Euphoria that she's on, or is it someone else? No, this was a movie. He, sh- I don't know if it was the Euphoria guy, but it was a it was a movie about her and like her partner or something that came out yeah, on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I haven't seen it, and it did look like it was more of an adult role. But I'm looking forward to this because I know it'll be more prominent. It's going to be a theatrical release sort of thing. Uh, this plot is about the wife played by Zendaya, who is also the manager of a famed tennis player in the middle of a losing streak who signs him up for a, a big event. And they find out he's going to be competing against her former lover. Oh, yeah. uh, and so he's described it as a... Or Luca Guadagnino has described it as a film about very fucked up people. Okay. Uh, he said it's very... Uh, he said it's a very sexy and twisted movie. Okay. And that it's not necessarily a heterosexual love triangle. Okay. So I'm like, okay. So it's, it sounds like it's it has a lot of elements going on that could go in a lot of different directions. Uh, the cinematography is going to be done by uh, Zion Mokdiprom, who's a Thai cinematographer who has shot films like uh, Three Syndromes in a Century, which was one of our patron Matt's picks of last year, and also Memoria, a movie you fell asleep during, but I watched with Tilda Swinton. Uh, and he was the same cinematographer that shot Call Me By Your Name in Suspiria. And so that is what got me really excited because I liked Bones and All, and its cinematography was not bad. But this guy and Luca Guadagnino, I mean, Suspiria, as we've said on the podcast, I have come to realize my favorite horror film of all time so far. I mean, right. How many times? We, I don't feel like we've I've only ever watched it once, but like, I've gone back and watched a lot of clips from it, and it's one of those movies where like, Images from Suspiria are burnt into my brain. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. These... Like, unforgettable. Yeah. And so, knowing that he's going to be collaborating with the same cinematographer on a movie that doesn't sound like it would be that visually... Uh, they're going to have that much visual spectacle to it, right? It just sounds, like, very character-centered. But then when you think about Call Me By Your Name, it is a movie about characters. It's a love story. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have, like, incredible visuals in that movie. Yeah. Like, it is shot beautifully. Yeah. And so, because it's Luca Guadagnino, he's a director who has yet to make a movie that I have not liked. That I am all on board. Zendaya's inclusion has me interested to see the kind of performance we're going to get out of her. Because I don't think we've ever seen her in a role like this before. And I'm hoping that this is the thing that we move into the next you know, phase of her career where she is becoming choosier about her work. She's not playing high school students anymore. That now it's time to yeah, play grown-ups. Yeah, I mean, like, she's, like, 28 right now. Yeah, and she's she, like... aging out. Well, you think that. about, like, 
just two years ago, she was playing a high school student in Spider-Man, like, I mean, and Euphoria, she, she plays yeah, a high school student. But, like, she can play it, like, it's not as if she can't play them. Well, I'm not saying, it's not that she isn't believable, but I would say creatively, maybe she likes it and she's fine, but I would think from a creative perspective, it's time to do something new, it's time to play characters you might, people might not think of you as. Well, and show not, that you can do that. Yeah, well, also, I'm not surprised because of the way that I've heard about the way that she's gone through her life. She just basically is like, all right, um, I'm just going to apply to roles that I know are supposed to go to white women. Yeah. And she, she's gotten the roles. That's why, like, she got Dune. Like, she was just like, just put my name in. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Uh, Dune, not on my list of top five. It's, it's, it's I mean, yeah. it's, I mean, again, I don't think it'll be bad. No, I think the reason why I didn't put Dune on my list is just like, I know it's going to be good. I know I'm going to watch it. I'm just going to put films that I might be out of my realm. I was thinking of movies that I want more people to be aware of. And then also my feelings about Dune, I'm not in love with the first movie because it's not a complete narrative. Yeah. And I'm waiting until the second movie to then decide if I appreciate it more than just as like a piece of production design. All right. So number three on your list. It's Passages. So, um... Directed by... Ira Sachs? Uh, Ira Sachs. Sachs. Um, and the actor is Franz... Rogowski? Yeah. Never heard of him. And um, he plays a filmmaker who is married to his husband, Martin, who's played by Ben Wishaw, and is tested to uh, embark of a world with romance when he has an affair with Agatha, and Martin begins his own affair in retaliation. Oh, I do think I've heard about this. So, again, we have another film that basically is a non- heterosexual yeah. like situation love triangle yeah and I, I mean i was interested by reading that just to see like oh because i feel like there's been a dip of like adult dramas in films well spe- specifically in like american cinema it's you're more than likely if you do find something that isn't part of a franchise or a cinematic universe everything i mean we just experienced this watching the menu it's yeah there's some clever elements but ultimately it feels like a movie for stupid people yes (laughs) and you're just like please i'm smart you can be more subtle you can challenge me you can give me controversial things you can explore sexuality in ways that maybe we aren't used to and like that's good we get to like you know, think about the human condition. Well, especially like the la- the this film and the past film that you were talking about. It just sounds like there's probably going to be more sexual elements in them, and it feels like that like American films have neutered and made themselves basically like celibate well, of there was, any sex scenes. I think there was like an essay in Vulture or something last year titled like "Everyone is Hot, but No One's Horny." Yes, and it kind of nailed it. Where it's we have all these very beautiful looking people on screens, but the films have become so chaste and absent of like what sex is and the way relationships operate that are sexual that it just feels like yeah it's making movies for like middle schoolers at this point and we're yeah. treating adults like they're still children i think it's also like this this weird awareness of knowing that everybody is streaming so therefore we can't make it too sexy because then a 14 year old's going to come up on this film because you know there's no parental well that's like yeah america it's so weird to me because you will find like the most sexually explicit movies on netflix from like romania 
And then the most like dishonest cookie cutter formulaic crap that doesn't show human relationships in a realistic way whatsoever. And so you can't find any like happy middle where people are having sex, but also having complex relationships with each other. It's either like pornographic or Disney Channel level discourse. Yep. Uh, and so, yeah, I think any time we're given a movie that's going to throw something more challenging at us, it's, get excited about it because they're so rare these days. Uh, my number three movie on my list is Die, My Love, directed by Lynn Ramsey. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have a release date on this one. Uh, it stars Jennifer Lawrence, who I would not say I'm a big fan of. So the reason that this one hooks me is it's Lynn Ramsey. Uh, I think we've not seen one of her movies, Morvan Caller which is a movie I remember hearing not so much great stuff about when it came out. Maybe one day we'll revisit it. But we've seen Ratchet Catcher. We've seen We Need to Talk About Kevin. And we've seen um, You Were Never Really Here. Yes. And at this point, when Lim Ramsey puts out a movie, I'm watching the movie. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. She has earned that at this point. Uh, so this movie is based on a novel by the same title. Uh, and that the novel's plot is about a forgotten patch of French countryside. We're in a forgotten patch of French countryside. A woman is battling her demons, embracing exclusion yet wanting to belong, uh, craving freedom while feeling trapped, yearning for family life but wanting to burn the entire house down. Given surprising leeway by her family for her increasingly erratic behavior, she nevertheless feels ever more stifled and repressed. Uh, it's a plot about postpartum depression. Oh, She's wow. a woman who's had a baby. Uh, I know Jennifer Lawrence isn't French, so I'm assuming maybe because it is being shot in France, it's that her husband and his family are. And so there's that outsider sensibility going on. Like, I don't belong here. Am I just, you know, a birthing cow for these people to continue their, like, lineage? Um, The fact that she's being allowed behavior that would would normally, like, chastise, that's an interesting element of, like, why are they letting her get away with this? Is it, like, they see it as a pressure release valve? And how far will she go with it? I know Jennifer Lawrence has been talking with a lot of hype about this movie, how excited she's been to be in it, Mm -hmm. and she's looking forward to it coming out. Martin Scorsese is producing it. Oh, that is high praise. Yeah, and it's when he picks out these movies, it's because there's something about it that he thinks isn't just a good movie, but it pushes the form forward. He's very interested in pushing films into what they're going to be next. He's not interested... In just letting movies stagnate and be okay. Mm-hmm. And I think him in the production seat, uh, Ramsey in the director's chair, Lawrence isn't a bad actress. I think she's very good with the right director. And I think Lim, I'm hoping that she and Lim Ramsey are this wonderful collaboration. I wouldn't be surprised. I th- like, again, I kind of feel the same way where I don't really, I can give or take uh, Jennifer Lawrence in, in movies, but I feel like she took a long break, was very smart about the break, and has also indicated that she doesn't want to do roles that she feels like someone else has already played and done, could have done, has done marvelous in. So if they're probably wanting to touch on something that hasn't been touched, like hasn't been touched too much before. When I say she's kind of like Kristen Stewart for me, where it's, I keep hearing they're good and I want them to be good. I just haven't seen a performance that gets me to agree with some of the things the critics say yet. Yeah. But I'm constantly holding out because I'm like, no, I think it's there. I can see it. I just haven't really, 
it hasn't been presented to me on the screen yet. Yeah, and it's like that weird thing is like, I think part of it is just like, you're like, oh, do you just like them because they are charming in their own ways, <laughs> like in interviews? So what is number four on your list? Uh, or number, it'd be number two on your list. Number two is 1976, directed by Manuela uh, Martellini. Uh, um, she's a Chilean, uh, Chilean, uh, Chilean, Chilean, and she's going to have Chilean actress, uh, Manuela, like it's her <laughs> and, um, she has Aline Kappenheim mm -hmm. stars as Carmen, a woman off to renovate her beach house and turn the eye to the oppressive, uh, regime that's going through her house. Oh, like her homeland and the ugliness of modern life that won't leave her alone. A priest um, asks her to look after a young man that he's been hiding, and she agrees to do that. Uh, that and to also then goes into unexplored territories, away from the life that she uh, that she's used to. So apparently, this um, director uh, had a movie that was released in Cannes, and her director uh, Con. uh, it's Con the Cannes, <laughs> and was. It had like sharp political undertones, and she's gonna repeat that again in this film. So, so because it's Chile, so this is gonna be like the Pinochet regime, is what yes. I'm guessing. It feels like we've seen more movies coming out about that era. There's another movie that I think we watched earlier in 2022 or at the end of 2021. Uh, I can't remember the title off the top of my head. But it was about a banker. I think it was he was in Chile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was that similar sort of. There's this very fascist, CIA um, funded oppression of leftist regimes and governments going on, especially with you know Augusto Pinochet in the driver's seat. Yeah, and so there's a remark here that uh, Pablo Lorraine has been carrying the banner of the Chilean cinema uh, for the past few years, and it's heartening to finally see someone else come up to in the cinema that's not just him. And I'm excited because we've talked about this at the least, like outside of the podcast, which we should never talk about films outside of the podcast, um, of wanting to see more like Latin American like cinema, yeah, versus just Western. When it American. seems like that kind of like South Korean movies for me feel like they are an established institution at this point, and so what's developing right now to me seems to be that Latin American, like Central South American. Uh, cinema apparatus is really kind of revving up and starting to put out more movies that are really good. Yeah. All right, well, number uh, two on my list is Eileen, directed by William Oldroy. And this is going to be premiering at Sundance, which means we'll likely see maybe a late summer fall release. Mm -hmm. uh, I know movies like Resurrection uh, premiered at Sundance last year and had that similar kind of release schedule. So William Oldroy, you might not remember because we've only ever seen one movie from him. Okay. Lady Macbeth with Florence Pugh. That was kind of her breakout movie. Did we? we yes, we did. Uh, she plays... Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, once I start describing the plot, you're going to remember. Okay. Uh, she... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> La Ladies and gentlemen, I psychically transmitted the plot <laughs> to her. So for you, those of you out there that can't, don't have ESP, like my wife, don't have this <laughs> mental bond that we share like twins... Um, <laughs> 
in Lady Macbeth, Florence Pugh played a woman who is a newlywed to an older man. He's very wealthy. He basically leaves her in his house while he goes off to do business. He's she has an, an asshole to her. Yes, she has an affair with the gardener, which becomes murderous towards her husband. Yeah. Things get real dark. Um, so Eileen is that same director, and it's the his second film. He hasn't directed anything since. Oh, okay. which is why I'm anticipating this because that movie was so good that you have me now. Like I'm yeah. interested. This is based on a book of the same name, Eileen, by uh, author Otessa Moshfeg, which I have not read any of her work, and I need to. I keep seeing her name. Uh, Lapvonia was one of her books that we keep seeing come up on book TikTok. It, it's book the cover. Talk. The book uh, cover has that lamb on it, and it's about like a medieval village or something. Yeah. So this is based on one of her novels. It's set in 1960s Boston. Um, Eileen is played by Mackenzie uh, Thomason. Or Thomason McKenzie, I flipped the name. Uh, that young, I think she's New Zealand or Australian actress. She was in uh, Last Night in Soho. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, just there's, I really like her, even though I don't necessarily like that movie specifically. I like her. I think she's yes. a good actress. Um, she is, shuffles between her father's dingy, emotionally haunted house and the women's prison where she works alongside colleagues who have ostracized her. She, they consider her very weird, right? Things start to look up when an intoxicating woman joins the prison staff, played by Anne Hathaway. Okay. That's where I'm like, okay, we're, we're now not what we would expect her to play. We usually expect her in the lead, yeah. not in a supporting role. Uh, Eileen is taken by her, so there's like possibly a romantic sexual relationship developing. And just when the possibility of a salvational friendship or more takes hold... Her newfound confidant entangles her in a shocking crime that alters everything. And that's, like, it makes me want to read the novel. Okay. Uh, and it's also, because this director, when you think about Lady Macbeth, he has such a strength in portraying the intoxication of a sexual relationship and how seduction can take very, like, dark turns and get people to do yeah. horrible things, which yeah. we saw in Lady Macbeth. So when I read this plot... This is playing to all the strengths we saw in that debut. Yeah. But it adds some new interesting twists of it's a different time period. We're now in the States. It's about two women. It's set in a women's prison. There's more horrific possible elements at play here. It just has me very interested to see what he does with this. And you have two actresses who I think are very good. I haven't necessarily thought... I thought Tom, uh, Thomas and Mackenzie was very good in Leave No Trace. Her roles since then have kind of been here and there to me. Anne Hathaway, I've been kind of lukewarm about, yeah. but I can see that she's good. Yeah, I mean, like, in Armageddon, she was the one that Armageddon had, like, time, yeah. Armageddon time, she had, like, the, the best actress, uh, like, the best a accent between everybody of what she yeah. was doing. It felt like she knew her character. She felt just, very authentic in that role. Yeah, it was just sad because it was sort of like they didn't really give her enough to work with. Because, yeah, the film really isn't centered on that character. Yeah. But so I'm hoping that this... Eileen, directed by William Oldroy, be looking towards a fall release date. I think this might be one of the best movies of the year. What is your number one most anticipated film of 2023? Time Stalker. So it is by um, Alice Lowe. She is British. She does a lot of comedy. Oh. We watched her film. She like, did a film, the horror film about a pregnant woman. Yes, a, that the baby wanted her to kill people. She, yeah, it was her baby kept telling her to, to kill like men that were being like kind of scuzzy and weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, 
this is the reason why I was this is the plot. Agnes has a problem. Every time she's reincarnated, she falls in love with the wrong man. Sounds pretty inconvenient, but the premise is as a funny twist. And I just I she's writing, directing, and starring in it. And just it's her like her other film. film. Yeah. Um which is like her her other film that was way underrated uh underrated. It was Prevenge. Oh yeah, Prevenge. Yes. I remember it now. And um So if you haven't seen Prevenge, it might be on a streaming service or something, you should watch it. So it it has Jacob Anderson, um David Copperfield, um, <laughs> an actual person. I, oh, I feel like I do know who that yeah, actress yeah, is. Yeah. I've heard and, of that actress Nick before. Nick Frost. Oh, okay, so yeah, I, she sort of travels in that same like Simon Pegg, Edgar Wright group. Yes, yeah, yeah. and so I'm interested to watching it just because I liked Revenge, even though it's like it, it's, it's a very not, low budget, simple it's movie. Low budget, but it simple, worked. But it's also the fact that she again is doing another project. And, and I, I, you know, I don't think she's written or directed anything since no, then. No, she yeah. hasn't. Okay. So I'm excited to see what comes from that. Right. Well, my number one most anticipated movie of 2023 that I don't know if we're going to see in 2023 <laughs> is The Zone of Interest, directed by Jonathan Glazer. Now, the last time we got a movie from Jonathan Glazer was Under the Skin, which oh, is over yeah. a decade ago. He's he also been... gave a Sexy Beast yep. birth. This guy is the real deal to me. This is one of those people that is like, you're always hearing people talk about who's going to take the mantle of Stanley Kubrick as that sort of director who's pushing the form in places that we've never seen before, challenging us, like being, not letting film be this sort of overly sentimental thing, but still reflecting raw human emotions. And this is the guy. Glazer does it every time. I think Under the Skin is one of the best films of the 2010s. Might be the best film of the 2010s. And one of the best films ever made. It, it, it's incredible. So The Zone of Interest is based on a novel by British writer Martin Amos, another writer who I've heard his name since I was in college and I have never read any of his books. I need to. Um, it is the story, it's set during the Holocaust. Okay. In a concentration camp. Okay. It is about a Nazi officer who finds himself falling for the wife of the camp's commandant. That's the plot of the novel. Okay. Uh, it follows their torrid love affair while the spurned husband begins to suspect his wife is cheating on him. Now, previously, we, it's Glazer, so I know it's not going to be that straightforward. That's just because Under the Skin was also based on a novel by Michael Faber, who's a Dutch writer, another writer I need to <laughs> read. Um, and people who've read that novel and watched the movie are like the the similarity is the premise and it ends after that it's, it's a totally different experience so that's where i'm expecting with this that it's going to be about you know a nazi getting his boss's wife to cheat with him but where it's going to go from there we're not sure he has rem glazer has remarked that he has been fascinated with photos that are focused on the faces of holocaust prisoners mm -hmm. And he did a short film that he explained was a thematic exploration of some of the ideas he wants to do in this movie, which we saw. It came out pre-COVID. I think it was, or maybe it came out right at the beginning of 2020. Or no, it was further back. It was 2019. And it was a little short film we watched where it was these people in masks. Mm -hmm. And they're basically going after this guy and they throw him down a well. And then the camera kind of lingers on him lodging himself in the well and trying to slowly crawl up out of it. You can look this up online. It was featured on like A24's website, I think, or something. 
and so that, he said, kind of focused on the thematic core of what he wants to do with the zone of interest. Now, it's been completely shot. The movie is done. Mm-hmm. It's in post-production. Yeah. And where it gets even more interesting with what he's doing is he said he is at the very least considering the idea of releasing multiple cuts of the movie. Okay. Not just different lengths, but he's thinking of the idea of releasing different cuts of different character perspectives. So making a cut from the perspective of the officer, making a cut from the perspective of the officer's wife, or the commandant's wife, making a cut from the perspective of a prisoner in the camp watching all of this unfold. And that has me, like fascinated with what this is going to be because like i said glazer he started out as a music video director being very innovative there and ever since he started making feature films which started with sexy beast was his directorial debut he is not interested in conventional filmmaking he is not interested in telling straightforward stories he is interested in finding the most interesting visual presentation of characters emotions and exploring his characters that way. You think about Under the Skin, the cinematic coldness of that movie and how it's yeah. reflective of our protagonist, an alien on Earth who doesn't know how to connect with these beings that she's encountering. Yeah. Uh, Sexy Beast, you think of the visuals in that movie, this sort of over-fried, just blazing sun kind of exhaustion of that movie, uh, which is reflected in... Um, Benjamin Kingsley's performance of just wearing this guy down over time. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know I don't know if I've ever watched Birth with You, Nicole Kidman. No, I've never watched that film. That movie is set in New York in winter and just has this very austere coldness to it. And so his movies aren't the narratives are very simple, I think. When you really if you had to write them down, they're not the most complex stories. The complexity comes in the marriage of the story with the camera work. And so that's why The Zone of Interest is my most anticipated movie because this guy has never failed me once. I can understand why people don't like his movies because they aren't easily digestible, but I believe they're worth the effort it takes to engage with his movies and really think about what he's trying to do. I think it's it's one of those rare things that, to me, his films come off like a novel. Yeah. And so there They're very are, literary. Yeah, so there are some films that, like, we talked about this when we watch films, that some of them feel like a collection of short stories. Some of them don't feel any... Like, that is just a movie. Like, that, like, yeah. I... Like, Martin Scorsese, to me, he makes movies. Yeah, his plots feel very cinematic. Yes, because even though there's a lot of stuff that are based on books that he reads, he's a big reader, it feels like a movie. Which reminds me like David Fincher, big, but uh, like that's a movie. Even though he does a lot of stuff that are based off books, it's Glazer's movies are very dense. Yes, and there's a lot of layers because you have to almost like zoom in, focus on the character, and try to think what that character is thinking because they're not verbally telling you. Or like in the case of Under the Skin, I mean, all his movies. You think about the weird dream sequences in Sexy Beast, yeah, with the machine gun carrying rabbit man. Yeah. Or in those, like, whenever the camera goes underground in that final dream sequence, that insane finale, uh, Birth does some similar things. Under the Skin, 
the that sort of alien dimension that she transports her victims to is well, so surreal yeah, and strange. Yeah, it's also like that amazing thing that like Scarlett Johansson in that film is probably the best that we've ever seen her oh, yeah. acting, and and it's also like a lot of the interactions that she has with men acting for like directions they don't know that they're on film they're recorded afterwards they sign everything but they didn't know it was that initial interaction is just them talking to a woman who pulls up in a van asking for directions yeah and then like trying to get them in the van and so that kind of technique where he's using sort of almost documentary technique Mm -hmm. in a feature film it makes me wonder what are we going to see in the zone of interest what kind of techniques are we going to use that we haven't seen before and how are they going to mesh with the overall structure of the film so yeah those were our i love that we had five completely different movies there was no overlap yeah i i consciously were like kind of thinking of you knew certain movies i was gonna include i lean i remember looking at it being but when i saw like the like the director i was just like he's gonna pick that so i'm gonna go pick films that are a little different but yeah we would be interested in hearing any anticipated movies that you have that we didn't talk about uh you can let us know by looking at the show notes and there is a link to voicemail or you can just comment on the website if that's where you listen to this and let us know any movies you've heard about that are coming out in 2023 that you're looking forward to in advance we don't give a shit about superhero movies (laughs) so those are not ones we're looking for they're boring Ah, the children of the night. What sweet music they make. You enjoy that? You didn't know I was going to do that, did you? (laughs) So, at the beginning of last year, uh, we went back, not all the way to the beginning, but to the moment where Francis Ford Coppola became a known quantity in American cinema with The Godfather. Since then, over the course of 2022, we watched all of his 70s films, and we watched all of his 80s films, including the Captain EO amusement park ride movie. Uh, And it's a very long, interesting, sad, terrible, sometimes wonderful filmmaking career that I think is a testament to what it means to truly be an artist, that you want to make things and not everything you make works you're doing it in a capitalist system where you have to make money and that can be an impediment uh, for Coppola. The 70s were a golden era. Godfather, The Conversation, Godfather Part Two, and Apocalypse Now. Like four of the greatest films ever made. I don't think there's any way you could argue against that. Uh, Apocalypse Now did have the profound effect of kind of mentally breaking Coppola a little bit and financially creating some problems. When the 80s came around, he thought he had another success in his hands with One from the Heart, a, a very uh, old-fashioned kind of musical about a relationship, uh, and that movie was not good. No. And that kind of began a trend. He managed to claw his way back a little bit with The Outsiders uh, that proved to be a pretty popular film among young people, but the 1980s was not good to Francis Ford Coppola. And he he began the 90s with The Godfather Part 3, which we have reviewed 
on this podcast previously, and you can go back and listen to that episode. I can spoil that for you. We did not like it. Dad? Yeah. <laughs> but we, and we even watched the cut that he put out more recently, the Coda. And it's still not good. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not a great movie. So, uh, for this episode and the next two, we will be watching the rest of Coppola's 1990s work. Uh, this episode, it's going to be Bram Stoker's Dracula. Next episode, the Robin Williams film, Jack. <laughs> which I have never seen in its entirety. Sorry. I have. <laughs> and you were surprised that Coppola directed uh, Yeah. And no, then just... the, he finished off the 90s with The Rainmaker, a John Grisham adaptation starring Matt Damon. So three very different movies. Yep. Uh, so, Bram Stoker's Dracula, I've seen it before. This was your first time watching it. Full, Yeah, full time watching. I've seen only pieces of it in the so, past. So, the film, it's the story of Dracula, but not exactly as Bram Stoker uh, wrote it, despite his name being in the title. I'd say it's faithful with a lot of artistic merit taken that adds layers, especially to the character of Dracula. Okay. Uh, so, Ariana, what were your thoughts about this movie after watching it. This is one of the horniest films I've ever seen in a while. So go into more detail. Okay. Um, it It's just like, just, it, I mean, it explains to me why in the 1990s and then the early 2000s, that boost of supernatural shows that came out, um, we're talking Buffy, we're talking Angel, and all like the little mimics of that um, there's a Canadian one that's probably like Lost Girl, mm-hmm. and this is a reflective of being like, oh, Supernatural. Well, you think uh, Interview with a Vampire. Interview with the Vampire yeah. is another, but I think, here's the thing, Interview with the Vampire's horniness is different from this horniness. Interview with the Vampire has more like seduction and homoerotic feels all over. And, you know, the gay community have completely, like, embraced Interview with a Vampire. And to the point that, like, now there's, like, a, a like AMC show, which I would like to watch because people really love that show, that is produced by Anne Rice's son, who is outward, like, openly gay. Mm-hmm. This is a different kind of horny. This, this is, is operatic. <laughs> yes, it is... Um, so the acting isn't really that spectacular. It all depends on which actor you're talking about. That's okay. the thing. It's almost like spin the wheel of actors, and whichever one you land on, you're getting it a is, performance different than the other it actors. Is mo- almost everybody is not doing an accent that's natural to them. Only one, I think, yeah, one actor is doing an accent. Because we're his, saying uh, Gary Oldman's British, but he's playing a Romanian. Yes. Anthony Hopkins is Welsh. And is playing a Dutch person. Yeah. <laughs> Winona Ryder is American and is playing British, as is Keanu Reeves, American yes. playing British. Yeah. And so it was, yeah, it was like everybody threw their accent in a jar and then drew a different one. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, like, Keanu Reeves, I'm not upset when I see him on screen. I am not upset. Which is a likable guy. He's a likable guy. You can feel that likability through the screen. You're just kind of like, yeah, he's going to try his best. But despite trying his best, it is not the best. In some ways, he is a pretty good example of like, I know he's not completely white, but white male mediocrity in that, why did he keep getting these acting jobs? He's not a great actor. He's just like, 
I'm guessing he's just a really pleasant guy to work with, and so his reputation as being a pleasant guy to work with, who's very hardworking. Yeah, and like is like, like yeah, that's what you Corpola, want. Like apparently had said like he really was trying. He got like he got a coach. He was trying, and at no point him be. This is the one thing I do not understand of him as a director, is him just like. Just allowing certain shit. Yeah, he's not. You think about when we think of directors, we think of you know dictators like a Kubrick or something. Coppola is just kind of there. A lot of times, he just sort of goes with the flow. He goes with the flow, but it also just seems like so. In the past, is just chaos, just fucking chaos. When I I think of like Marlon Brando, just fuck, just not showing up on scenes until two weeks like later. Like an apocalypse now. An apocalypse yeah. now, and the just like just you know he tolerates a lot. As a he director. tolerates it. And I don't mean that in a mean way. It's also sort of like, why did you just not stop and go, hey, Kiana, you could just talk in your regular voice. Yeah, let's just skip Nobody the really gives a shit. But instead, he's letting this poor man struggle with this accent. Or maybe Reeves was like, I'm doing it. I'm doing the accent. There was yeah, nothing that could be He's struggling with this accent. And then it is. And, you know, Gary Oldman has always been a great actor, he's giving his best. He's he's really doing it. He's selling it. Oh yeah, the highlight of this film is Gary Oldman. He, I couldn't imagine casting anyone better for this role. But, he's so good. And then it's like, because he plays essentially he's playing multiple characters. When you think of Dracula as we're introduced to him, Dracula when he arrives in London, yeah, Dracula by the end of the movie, these are like different people completely. And uh, like. Winona Ryder is also trying to do an English accent. And well, speaking of her, she's the one who brought this script to Coppola. She did? She was originally going to play Michael Corleone's daughter in The Godfather Part 3 and left very late into the production, which uh. is why Sophia had to be cast, which is why I give <laughs> Sophia a little leeway. <laughs> I still don't. Her brother had died in like the last few years. And, and her dad needed the her, money. And so her dad like, needed the money, so she kind of stepped in and did it, right? Yeah. And so Winona Ryder was very worried when she left because she did want to work with him again. There were just personal things going on with her that she could not do it. Yeah. And on her way out, she showed him this script that she was really excited about. And she said, like, she hoped he would read it, but she wasn't sure because she could tell he was mad at her. For leaving. For leaving his production, right? Yeah. Especially because he did The Godfather Part 3, not because he was in love with the movie, but this was going to fulfill some financial obligations. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and she was, like, a big name, so it would have brought more oh, people yeah. in the seats. And so he was probably worried about how that was going to affect the movie. They're not going to bring in young people, right? Uh, but she said that when he saw Dracula, he got very excited. Okay. And we're talking about how that was one of his favorite stories that he heard at summer camp. I don't know why... Dracula is being told like of summer camp ghost stories. Dracula doesn't seem like one that would come up. I just love that it's not that he read the book or that like he saw like you know the old Dracula movies like being is it sort of like Universal Monsters? No, and no. you can tell he's not. This is not a movie that he's borrows anything from that Universal no. version. But um, it is visually. So interesting and such a masterpiece, especially of practical effects. Of, yes, and like the, one of the last like before computers took over everything. Kind yeah, of and it was just sort of like he probably knew they couldn't use computers, but he's like, let me be 
old school in this method. Well, it came out the year after James Cameron's Terminator 2, which I remember being like, that was the movie everybody was talking about. Oh, this villain's completely digital, and look how amazing it is. And then for Coppola the next year to go, yeah, I'm going to shoot a movie like it was made in the 1920s. Yes. So it's visually very appealing. It is... um it is very old school, and I don't. I've never read the book. Ne- have neither you? have I. Okay, no. so I did not know that. I didn't. There's a lot of other plot stuff. A lot of people don't. Yeah, aware. like we've seen the Universal movie, and it cut a lot of stuff. Yeah. Out. So, um, Lucy, her friend. Lucy, her friend, is like flirting with these three other guys, like three completely different got, personalities. Um, the, I always forget his name. The, the guy who played the Rocketeer is a cowboy. Yeah, he's a Texan. You've got um, Richard E. Grant as a doctor who works at the asylum where Renfield is Yeah, held. who lives in the asylum. We're, yeah. It is, and then, okay. The one who I feel like we don't really get much information about, Carrie Elwes plays this like wealthy British aristocrat who just kind of funds the hunt for Dracula yeah. at the end of it. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. We really don't get much. Richard he's, E. Grant we get the most about. Yeah, and like he is like uh, engaged to Lucy. The Elwes character. Yes, yeah. he's engaged. He, she, he's the one she finally picks. Yeah, and so it's supposed to be like, uh, so Keanu's character is going off on <laughs> to, to work. Well, what he, does he do as a job? He's a real estate guy. He, yeah, he sells real estate, and it's they have a client in Count Dracula who lives in uh, the Transylvania region yes, of Romania, and he's like buying a ton of property in a certain area. Yeah, and so. Um, the prior person, because it's the predecessor, happens to be Tom Waits. Who plays Renfield. <laughs> who plays who, Renfield. He's great. I loved him in it. Okay, but then, like, and he's worried about, like, his, and, like, his fiance spending time with Lucy, because Lucy's, like, super rich, very flirtatious. horny. <laughs> She's just sort of, like, and there's, like, um, but, but yeah, the, what, what I love, what, what's the name of Keanu Reeves' character? Uh, Jonathan Harker. So Jonathan Harker goes to Dracula's home, and he's kind of like, man, this is kind of like really, the vibes are really fucking off here, right? And he gets in there, and then, uh, like, Dracula was like, hey, glad you're here. By the way, I'm going to need you to write a letter to all your friends and family and work and tell them that you're going to stay here for a month. And he's like, oh. (laughs) But I feel like even in the book, from what I've heard, it's real weird. Like, Jonathan just accepts some weird shit real easily. Yes, he is, you know, a lovable himbo who's just He's just this idiot who's trying to sell this property. He's like, I'm just, you know, I just want to get married and I just want to make some money. And I don't think they could make that time in Dracula's castle creepier than it is because <laughs> it, it is so just... fucking creepy and so great like... and so <laughs> atmospheric and so much fun it's like Dracula so um he's you know Keanu's just standing there and he happens to have a cross on him and like Dracula's like oh, we don't we don't believe in that these old school, like he's angry about the cross, and he's just sort of like telling him to try to t- like take it off. At no point is like he, Jonathan suspicious. Yeah, Jonathan suspicious about what the fuck's going well, on. You're you're kind of skipping over. The man's shadow operates independently of him. It is like the. It is it's like, so good. It's so good. It's so good. And then like so, Jonathan is like, this is a really fucked up place. He thinks that he's having a dream. 
and or you you assume he's having a dream about like these sexy women only for it to be real they're dracula's brides dracula's brides are like you know sucking on his blood and barely keeping him alive and dracula's like no you shouldn't have done that and he brings him a baby and then jonathan is like watches the women eat the baby yeah watches them eat the baby and in the meantime um his fiance is like hanging out with lucy Looking at Kuma, uh, like the, Ku- book, the Kama Sutra, the Kama Sutra books, confused as to how it is that that's well, done. I want to say that uh, <laughs> Coppola said that he was attracted to the sensual elements of the screenplay. Uh, it's and so- he said he he wanted the movie to resemble an erotic dream. That's his direct quote. I mean, he accomplished it when you like. What's that French is uh, French actress's name? Like, uh, it is it Monica uh, Bellucci. Bellucci. Who's like? I, uh, is she is she Italian? I With Bellucci, she's, she's in a lot of French movies. I don't she's know. She's in a yeah. lot of French movies. I just know, like, she's probably the most gorgeous woman in the fucking world. And, like, this is her, like, in her youth. That, Before like, she was, like, someone people knew the name of. Yeah. At least in the States. Like, didn't know the names. You know, titties out. Just, like, <laughs> licking her lips. Like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and it's just, like, there's a lot of, like, licking on Keanu. It is, like, this weird thing. Is it supposed to be that they're biting him? But is he's, like... The seductive, like, tongue lolling out kind of shit, and they're just topless the whole time. The Let's talk about some of the production design elements. The opening of the movie is Uh this massive prologue that involves all kinds of different techniques. One of the things that's very obvious when you watch this movie is it's shot on sound stages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which Coppola when he was asked about this, said he did this because he was not going to allow inclement weather to fuck up his production and cited Apocalypse Now and One to the Heart as movies that they came in uh, past the due date, over budget, and he was like, not with this one. I'm going to make a movie that will be have mass popularity, wide release, and it is going to come out on the date at the amount of money we budgeted <laughs> for it. <laughs> He learned. Yeah. He grew. He I mean, like, now in his current he's, film, he's doing it on a stage. Yeah, Mega, like, Megapolis. Yeah. 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 But, like, he's still... What I love is even though he was very keenly aware of the business elements of the industry, it didn't tamper the artistic elements of the work. Not because it was great. Like, yeah. he knew exactly what he was doing. Okay, so... Uh, one other writer hanging out with Lucy books. Uh, I... The funny thing looks like, okay, so Lucy is, like, naturally, like, very flirtatious and all that stuff. But I I would want, there's never an explanation as to why it is that the moment that Dracula, like, lands into, like, England and it's just, like, horny time, 10,000. Like, the girls are, like, out in the rain and then they kiss. And this is, like, I remember, like, that that scene was embedded in my brain because I think I saw it, like, when I was, like, eight or seven. And, you know, I came from a household that's, like, gay is bad. And I'm, like, gay doesn't seem so bad. (laughs) (laughs) I was watching that scene. So that scene was embedded in my brain of when a writer, like, kissing her i thought it was a makeout scene from the way my brain but very just, brief it very is, chaste kiss it's, yeah it's a very brief kiss and then uh like then dracula kind of focuses on lucy first yeah lucy like he kind of like uh it's almost like a prelude to because he he really wants mina and the vibe i got was that he was kind of reading jonathan's letters to her and the, the vampires within this movie are drawn to extreme passion. 
And so the love that she had for Jonathan, like that passionate depth of that love, and the fact that she's a reincarnation of his dead wife. Yeah, I think it was <laughs> yeah. like he was like trying to figure out but where the fuck she was. It's like a combination was. of those two things. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. This is a woman capable of a great depth of passion and love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she is the embodiment of the woman that I love that I lost mm-hmm. and turned me into this monster. That like that's where the sort of energy of the movie comes from. Yeah, and so like he gets up on Lucy. He decides to just like sink his teeth in her while he's sort of in this Lycon kind of state, like between human and wolf. Yeah, he's able to just shift between like that. That is one of the things I really like about the movie is it showcased the forms that Dracula takes. Yeah, where he's a fog. He's a bat. He's half bat, half man. He's a werewolf. Yeah, like, and it's like this interesting thing that like well, uh, Mina sees, and he's like. Don't see me. Don't look at me. And then, like, when he sees her on the street, when he looks all young, he's like, look at me. Acknowledge me. And she's kind of like, uh, go fuck yourself. It's all, it's just, it's weirdly, like, watching it now, it's, we're supposed to have Mina being, like, this strong, independent woman by being like, hey, fuck off, leave me alone, I'm already engaged. Only for, like, Dracula to kind of, like, fucking guilt her (laughs) or just be like, hey, can you leave me alone? And he's like, ooh, well, I guess this prince is going to go be alone. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I'll show you around. And then that's when their, like, romance kind of starts. But I think it it works because we have, we establish that there are these brides of Dracula, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't love these women. They are women that he has made a part of his... I don't know what you call, like, a group of vampires. I don't know. A clan of vampires. Um, That he doesn't really love them, but they're necessary for his, like, physical pleasure, I guess. Yeah. But it's because he truly loves Mina, he doesn't want to lure her in the way that he's lured them. He wants her to genuinely return his love. And that's, that's the fatal flaw for Dracula is his... It's not his vampirism that gets him. It's his humanity. Yeah. And his need to have that love reciprocated rather than force her to love him. Mm-hmm. That kills him in the end, ultimately. That's the weakness. I mean, like, he basically begs to be killed. Yeah. When he realizes that he can't endure cursing her to what he's had to endure, all he's left with is kill me then. Because yeah. I can't live without you, but I can't make you live in the way that I have. That would be and obscene it's also sort of, of like me. I would rather die than continue to be this person because now I see how awful you can see how I've become. Yeah, he sees himself reflected in her eyes and realizes I'm a monster. But it's like... And then... So that whole thing is going on. Jonathan manages to escape, goes to like a, a non-convict. Uh, a convict? Uh, yeah. A um, convent. Convent. Anyway. And, like, is, like, telling Mina, hey, you need to come see me as soon as possible, and then we're going to get married. Which gets her out of London so that they can kind of play the Lucy yeah, story and, a little like, more. Yeah, and, like, Lucy is, like, getting really, really sick, and, like, I mean, she dies. Um, well, she's being turned into a vampire, and they yeah, have to, like, and so kill her. that is when we are introduced to Sir Anthony Hopkins' character. Abraham Van Helsing. Which is, um, I love that, like, he barely tries to do a Dutch accent except he adds ya to yeah. almost ya yeah, he is a vampire or, no, he didn't say a vampire he goes ya he is vampire yes and it was um 
And it was like that, like the doctor ends up calling him, the one that lives in the fucking... Which I love how kind of like villainous that guy is. Because it's, he kind of takes advantage of Lucy while she's sort of in this uh, stupor from Dracula's machinations. Yeah. Where he's like, he's a creepy fucked up little weirdo. Well, I think it's also very creepy to live in the insane asylum. And, like, yeah. trying to get this woman to marry you when you live in a, in a same asylum. Like, where the fuck is she going to go? Like, where is she going to live? You're, you're, what, what? Let's put a new coat of paint on the room. <laughs> um, he's introduced, and that's when things, like, it's almost like it's a shift towards trying to make it an adventure story. But Coppola does a good thing of balancing it where in another film, like, Mina would have kind of disappeared. But Mina she becomes the essential. She's the focus. Uh, when it's interesting, whenever he was drawing inspiration, first of all, he he invested a ton of money of his own into the costume budget. Okay. And he told his production designers, bring me the weirdest shit you've got. <laughs> he, this was what he told them. He wanted weird. He just wanted weird things to look at, and then he would figure out what fit. Um he had the an artist storyboard the entire film in advance, every single scene and shot. Okay. Uh, then it, the process created over a thousand images. He then turned those drawings into a choppy animated film. Okay. Added music to that. Then spliced in scenes from uh, Belle et Bette, which was Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast film okay. from 1946. Along with paintings by Gustav Klimt, which for people that may not be that art aware, modernist writer, a lot of like gold gilded images. There's a yeah. very famous painting of this like couple that's embracing and it has that sort of gold, almost tortoise shell pattern to it. Yeah. Um, and other like symbolist artists because it was this very kind of, it's an expressionist film. This isn't hap- happening in a literal world. This is a world where like, the setting reflects the emotions of the characters that are yeah. in them, kind of a thing. Um, and I think that, like, these creative choices are what made the movie. Yeah. If you didn't have these creative choices being made, it would have been just another kind of forgettable, like, oh, it's Dracula, whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's so visually appealing and grotesque and horrific. Like, dr- Dracula as an old man is clearly a reference to that like Nosferatu thing. Yeah. But it's not derivative of Nosferatu. He didn't just go, hey, the makeup in Nosferatu, copy that. What he did was he was like, let's take the sort of form of this haggard ghoul, but add elements that humanize it a little more so he doesn't stand out as like a monster so explicitly. He's monstrous. He's creepy. But you're like, maybe he's just like a weird, rich old guy that lives in a castle, right? At first glance, you're yeah. like, we could sell it as that. Of course, when he's crawling up the walls like a spider, then you're in a new world. Or you're licking a- uh, Keanu's uh, shave, uh, shaving blade. Yeah. Um, but then you have that Dracula as an attractive man. And it's clear that they do not go to the Bela Lugosi portrayal for that. And it's one of those, it felt like a look that we were seeing a lot in the 90s. It was very Interview with a Vampire before Interview with a Vampire. Kind of like Brad Pitt's look a little bit in that movie. Well, long, luscious locks. And And I, I would have a feeling the production design people for that movie, which I think came out, what, 94? Mm-hmm. Two years after this, clearly looked at this movie 
to pull some of the costuming, I think. Yeah. They didn't go as wild as Coppola does. In I some think moments. they were more like historically accurate, but they probably oh, yeah. like took some ideas about the least rich colors of trying to make them like or that sort of stand top out. hat granny glasses combo feels like that's become a vampire thing, and I don't think that has always been a vampire yeah. thing. Um, but then, like, the monstrous transformations of Dracula, especially that half-bat, half-human thing he becomes, yeah. is so effective and shot so well. Uh, it's just, yeah, I think everything about this movie is just so visually interesting. Um, what did you think of the the way the movie wrapped up it's a very abrupt ending i thought it was a good wrapping up i did like the fact that you know jonathan is like holds everyone back and it's just sort of like you know we might have started this but she has to finish it and it's it's one that is it does feel abrupt because um jonathan and mina do not have a conversation of what is happening and we don't really understand where their relationship is yeah because it's sort of like they still love each other but he's understanding that the relationship between her and dracula is something completely different and she has such complicated feelings about dracula herself because it's sort of like she's mad at him because he killed lucy like and he did he he's the one that brought lucy to her end um he's mad at her she's mad at him because she's sort of like i don't want to be what you are but i love you and i don't know what to do about it so he's like then you're just gonna have to end my life yeah and like he completely understands her conflict and he's yeah. like yeah there isn't anything i can do to fix that for you yeah because he's like i am the cause of your grief yeah. i am like when i, I kind of like that the movie Nowadays, you would have, like, another scene that kind of acts as an epilogue to wrap things up. But I like, because the movie feels like an opera, it ends the way an opera does, which is just, like, a horrible, tragic death. Mm -hmm. And then the audience is just sort of left to sit there and think about, like, what would you do next? Yeah. Because I know that uh, in a lot of popular fiction that's come out about this, she's Mina Harker. So the idea is that, oh, she goes ahead and gets married to Jonathan. But in this version... I can't imagine that she would, or it would be a much more difficult thing. I think it's like she is married to him, and she's gonna. Stay oh yeah, they with do. Jonathan. They do they get married do, in the movie. Get yeah. married. But like, I, think, I can't imagine like her sticking with him. I could see her leaving him just as likely. Yeah, but I think it also has to do with the fact of like having. It's she ends it, but it's also sort of like, it's no longer her entirely because like she's recalling like a past life. Yeah, she is that woman that he lost. Yeah, and it's sort of like she is confused and sorts because she is, there is duality within her because basically she's two people merged into one and she's going to have to let that other person, a part of her die yeah, along with him. Because there's no reason to retain it if he dies. Like that's yeah. what's causing her trouble is this duality inside yeah. her. Um, now talking about where this fits into Coppola's overall body of work. I feel oh, like it's God. a return to form. I, yeah, it's also like this one where it's kind of cheesy, but in a good way. Well, it's, he specifically said that he wanted to go back to the roots of filmmaking and use those techniques to show that they were still effective and could work in a modern context. Well, it's not even the techniques. I'm talking about the acting. 
Like the it is well because one thing I've wondered has Cop was Coppola ever an actor's director? I don't think he was because when you think about it as movies, there are good performances. But even like you say, oh, you know, Al Pacino was great in The Godfather. It's such a restrained performance. It's not showy, so he doesn't ask actors to perform in that way, which I think it suits them. When you think about Gene Hackman in the conversation, very restrained, very controlled, well, I think but it works. Once he has really good actors, the actors really shine because they're just doing their thing. They're they're very much people who are have honed their crafts and are going forward but since he is very loose like i think that's one of the reasons why i have a problem with him and marlon brando is just sort of like you're letting things get out of the way because you're not in charge of it you're not on top of it you just want to make this film and you want to make it visually and story-wise you want to hit those marks and just go but when it comes to actors that aren't very strong you think about one in the heart like yeah, where it's like you have good actors like Terry Garr, Raul Julia, uh, Nastasa Kinski, but it's just like he doesn't seem to know what to do with them. He doesn't know what to do with them, and it's almost like he can't acknowledge that on screen this is not good. It's sort of like, hey guys, aren't we having fun making a movie? And it's like, yeah, you yeah. are, but are you looking at what you're making and does it work? Maybe for him, one for the heart works, but yeah, it didn't for me. It's and like, and so it makes me interested to see his next film because Aubrey Plaza is going to be with it with Adam Driver. Mm-hmm. Um, Aubrey Plaza we've seen like she's gone up in her acting and she's talked about how she doesn't want people to accommodate her to just let her act Um, like challenge her with things yeah and so is she going to because she's married to a director is she going to be more like tell me what you need and I can do it or because she's married to a director has she developed a sense to kind of read directors and kind of understand those things that they can't necessarily verbalize? Yeah, and then there's Adam Driver, which honestly he hasn't really disappointed me in no. anything. I just don't. I I'm think not, he, he wastes his talent in things like the Star Wars movies the, and I then mean, White Noise. I think he was good in it. It just wasn't a good movie. Yeah, I think it was also like White Noise is a whole conversation and by itself, but. Yeah. It's one that we don't know until the final product is given to us. And I would think when we're looking at what he uh, Coppola did in the 80s, I see connections between Dracula and things like Rumblefish, mm-hmm. which were very expressionistic, and it clearly wasn't happening. It used like a lot of green screen. It's also the visual aspects of something yes. completely different. Where it's the, char- the emotions of the characters are being reflected in the world around them. Yeah, so it's... It's one where I view Coppola not as this... I don't view him as like like someone that would be like, oh my god, he creates masterpiece after masterpiece. <gasps> I consider him a very good working director. No, I'd say even more than that. Because when I think of like uh, you know a working director, they're kind of given pictures by studios and they do them like fine. Like, they're, they're passable. Yeah. I see Coppola as someone who gets an immense joy out of making films, mm-hmm. even if the final product is a complete failure, and he's honest enough to acknowledge when his work just doesn't hit, but something happens in the... It sort of teaches us that there's a difference between the process of the making and looking at the final product those are two different things i well i think it's more like he just he puts out work that he himself is just proud of 
Not necessarily. Those some of those movies in the eighties. He's expressed like, yeah. Which ones were he? Was he not? Um, I'm, not I, I'm not challenging. I'm just curious. <laughs> How dare you? I know, like, uh, Cotton Club was a movie that he was very excited to make, and then ultimately he could say that he felt like he didn't. By the time it was done, he realized he kind of lost what it was he wanted to do. Yeah. Um, of course, Gardens of Stone was made right after his son died, and so. It's a movie that he regrets because he knows he didn't do justice to the material because of personal circumstances. Yeah. Um, like then you have something like Captain EO, which Lucas brings George Lucas brings him in to do, and he's like, "Oh, it's really fun. I got to work with Michael Jackson. It was really cool to work with Michael Jackson." And so it was this kind of he knows that not everything he makes is a masterpiece, but there's, he always tries to find some experience in it that informs him as just a person or a director. Uh, and I see... What's interesting is that when we talked about the actors, do you think about the actors involved in Dracula, the sort of four core actors, Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves are both coming out of their sort of youthful pictures. Mm-hmm. She's like post-Burton, post-Heathers, and she's wanting adult roles, which is why she brings the script to him in the first place, why she was going to be in The Godfather Part Three. Keanu Reeves is post-Bill and Ted, He's trying to really do some serious acting now. That's what brings him. Christian Slater was originally offered the role, and he turned it down and said he regrets that he turned it down. And I don't necessarily know if I think he would be better. I don't. I don't know. I can't. No. I can't imagine him. I think he might have been a little too much and taken away from Gary Oldman. Well, I think it it would have been too much, and also people would. I think they would probably be reflecting back on Heather's. And so then you have Anthony Hopkins. This is coming out a year after Silence of the Lambs. So he is like peak Anthony Hopkins here. He is yeah. a hot talent. But it's it's more like he comes off a little jokey. Yeah, he do, he seems to not be taking the movie as seriously as the other people are. Which I think it per- works perfectly fine because the movie isn't as serious as we would think. But he's he's playing more into the campy elements of it. Yeah, and I think the thing is like if you view it as a campy film, it is an amazing accomplishment as a campy film. I rather would watch it with that camp in mind. And thinking this is like an important movie. Because it makes it such more of a success when it's like, when you think it, about it as It's camp. just no holds barred going for the the most over-the-top thing you can do. So it's just like, to me... It, but then Gary Oldman. Gary yeah. Oldman. So Gary Oldman first comes to prominence, I think, a year prior in Oliver Stone's JFK, where he plays Lee Harvey Oswald. So he's not the main character in that movie, but Oswald is so central to that story. Mm -hmm. And before then, Oldman is not really a known quantity in American film, and that set him apart. And then Dracula is just... Pushes That's where you're like, this guy can do that? Like the way, like I was saying, he plays multiple characters, even though they're all Dracula. These personas are so different. Yeah, he's playing an old man. He's playing the younger version. He's uh, and I'd say if we're talking about like which actor is the most successful in their work, it's Oldman. Yeah, and it's no surprise that he comes out of Dracula and is offered role after role after role through the '90s because you're like this guy can literally play anybody. Um, but yeah, I'm interested now as we're going forward into next week because we'll end up watching Jack, which features <sighs> Bill Cosby. <laughs> I remember and Jennifer Lopez. I think. Like yeah, a, I think she plays a teacher. Yeah. So I'm interested because it's a movie. I know the premise of it. Yeah. And I think I may have caught like the beginning of it when it aired on TV, but I was like, I don't want to watch this movie. Um, and so now I'm interested in finally sitting down, knowing that Coppola directed it, and just. We're having this conversation again next week about where it's going to fit into yeah. his Yeah, it just, work. to me, I'm like, like, I say, he at the least gets shit done. 
once he makes his, his uh, you know, has a contract to make a movie, he's going to make the movie. But yeah. he's not going to do it half-assed. No. He's going to do everything he can to make it the best movie possible. It's just they don't always turn out great. Yeah. All right. So that was our review of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Come back next week where we'll be talking about Jack. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Pop Cult Podcast. Make sure to check out our show notes for relevant links and links to our website, popcult.blog. We update that site every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and more on the weekends with reviews of other movies, television shows, comic books, whatever sort of media we're interested in. Uh, This year on the blog, I'm going to be trying out two new ongoing type of features reviews. One of them is called Looking at Art, and the first post for that's going to be up tomorrow on Sunday, January 8th. And it's going to be a series where, after having watched a bunch of movies and seeing so many directors reference visual artists, particularly paintings and sculptures, I want to build my knowledge of that. And so you can come along with me on that journey. Uh, starting tomorrow with the first post where we're going to be looking at a very famous cave painting. Uh, Another series that I'm going to be adding to the blog that I'm interested in doing is uh, reviewing solo tabletop role-playing games. used to do a lot of tabletop gaming a few years ago. I'm not necessarily interested in joining an online group or anything and playing, you know, groups campaigns, but I'm interested in exploring the world of solo tabletop role-playing, which is also kind of a writing exercise, and that first one will be up uh, in a couple weeks with a game uh, going along with Dracula called Thousand Year Vampire. Uh, Also on the blog, we've got our regular things going on. Right now we have a film review series, uh, The Great American Documentaries Volume 1, where we're going through and looking at some movies you've probably heard of if you're a documentary fan, Uh, things like... uh, the Maisel's Brothers, Salesman and Grey Gardens, Barbara Koppel's Harlan County, USA, many others. Um, we're also uh, in the middle of a comic book review series on Stan Lee and John Romita's Spider-Man, looking at very experimental, cutting-edge for its time form of storytelling that was really kind of reinventing comics and what they could be. Uh, if you enjoy what we do here on the podcast and what we do over on popcult.blog, we would encourage you to think about supporting us on Patreon. Link for that is in the show notes. Speaking of, we would like to thank our patrons, Becca and Matt. They both donate at the $10 writer's room level. And the big feature that affords them is every month they get to pick a movie. I watch it. I write a review. If you sign up on that same level, you do get the option to include your own thoughts, if you wish, with the movie that I review. Well, until next time, keep watching.